Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. All right, welcome to Chapter 14. We're in 2007 and talking about Second Life in Virtual Worlds. I'm here with Grant Potter and Sarah Frick for a conversation, so let's get into it. Sarah, what were you doing or what were you involved with back then for Second Life in Virtual Worlds? Well, um, 2007, I was a very junior e-learning instructional designer, and I had just come out of um, kind of a corporate radio station web design role and had done a lot in the past with um, just media design, web design, and graphic design. And um, I kind of came into this team in Alaska at the University of Alaska Fairbanks that had already been doing a lot of distance education because we were in Alaska and vast geography. And they kind of had a pretty rich history and a really good team. So I kind of came into this very advanced team. Um, We already had an island in Second Life called Rhetorica. And one of the more senior designers, uh, Kristen Buford, um, she was working on making our island into this space for our local Rasmussen library. And they were going to do an art awards opening there. And we did that. And um, so I kind of was like awestruck. I was like, this is my new job. I get to like spend some of my time at work, like (laughs) playing, you know, this role-playing game, which wasn't really a game, you know? So I was, I was kind of like, you know, young and full of hope and just like, wow, like I didn't know ed tech was so advanced. Um, and, um, you know, I tried to find my niche, you know, I was able to kind of build in it right away because I, I had a web design background and I, you know, was kind of a maker nerd and, um, but, you know, I kind of found my niche right away in, um, in there's an NPR science Friday Island called Sci-Fry. And so I would go to that, like I would spend time in there just like with, with some people that I felt comfortable with, like checking out what's going on and interacting, um, and, and that was kind of, you know, where I was at that first part of, um, of my, you know, instructional design e-learning career, very, very much, um, you know, optimistic and, and awestruck by being able to kind of, you know, see this advanced technology. Love it. We're always so hopeful at the beginning. And it's interesting, uh, Martin starts this chapter off um, that you've probably heard earlier this week around Linden Labs launching in 2003. I didn't actually hear about it until about 2006 or seven. So I guess this, it, you're on point, Martin. Well done for that. Um, and I, um, I'll be honest, full caveat, I've not lived in Second Life. I've just been an outside observer. And so that's why I brought these great people on to talk about it. So I can ask so many questions because I know, Grant, you too were involved in the virtual worlds. What were you doing around that time? Uh, Living in Second Life, virtual worlds where? Uh, No, I wasn't living in Second Life, but I was definitely playing video games. And I could see the Second Life thing emerging, you know, at early days. At the time when it first started emerging, I was working at a teaching IT and, and Java, actually, in a private Chinese offshore school, so in Dalian, China. And I moved to British Columbia in around 2006 and seven, and took a job as a high school principal. I started teaching some technology there, and I was also assigned to as this vice principal role of a fledgling distributed learning school. And uh, so I had uh, I was system administrator of their Moodle, you know, server. And the more I started seeing Second Life emerge, and this thing that Martin mentioned in the chapter called Sloodle, I was 
uh, I started actually saying, while well, contacting some of the students in the school that were using Moodle and say, hey, if I gave you like kind of a video game environment where you could use, you know, you could tap into the learning management system, would you use it? And they were like, oh, yeah, we'd use that. So I started learning Linden scripting language and learning how to use this thing. So it's Loodle was the way that I actually got really got involved, you know, with Second Life and spent more time in it and working with the students. And uh, it was from there that I uh, I took a job at the University of Northern British Columbia shortly after that. It was only in that uh, gig for about a, a year. And then I started working with OpenSim at the Un University of Northern British Columbia, which is like the open source platform. Uh, very similar in many ways. You could even use the Second Life viewer and, and connect to these open platforms. Pretty, it had all the same kind of hangups and problems that, that uh, you know, the Linden Labs offering, our Linden Lab servers had. But it allowed you a little bit more creativity and some flexibility. And, you know, do a, you could get you know, access to the platform itself. And we were running that OpenSim at the time. Uh, on Amazon, which was like the, like a very early Amazon service, like EC2 service. So uh, yeah, I I, uh, I taught a few uh, workshops on Linden scripting language, uh, both in world as we used to say, as well as in person. And uh, yeah, that would be. Uh, and it was shortly after my forays in the open sim that I left the virtual worlds behind, but still a gamer. It's interesting. I love that we always create these weird words like sludle that rhymes with Moodle because we want to integrate them. I, like, I, I don't know. I think we just do this to confuse people coming into teaching and learning with technology. Um, I, I I was not connected at all, but this time I'll just say that I started, uh, I was an academic advisor at the University of Toronto and I'd gone down to a conference in the US and met these folks from Penn State World Campus and they were living their best second life in uh, advising there, having an island to uh, really supports their fully online campus. So Penn State is a university, but there's also the World Campus, which has been fully online, and they've been online since um, the early 90s. And uh, this was a way to kind of en have engagement, student services, student affairs, um, and also like have everything from live concerts to meetups to campfire chats and advise. And so they were sharing a little bit of what they were doing, what other one other instructor was teaching tort law and a law, a law class. So a lot of this chapter reminded me about the hopes that they had for Second Life um, in the mid-aughts. And it, this is not the only kind of virtual world that was out there. Like I was thinking about, um, as you both are interested in games, like The Sims were around and started in the early 90s, right? And they, there's places that people could jump in and hack. And I wonder, had people put too much hope in a virtual world versus some of the gamified aspects of Second Life. Is, is this where we got lost and we should have been more worried about the role playing and less about the actual space? I don't know. I think that's where the real, you know, gold was in Second Life was the role playing aspect of things. And I and, and, and in some respects, there were some people that derived a lot of real value about exploring identity, exploring embodiment, and um, exploring uh, the notion of, uh, and I, I remember at the time reading a lot uh, of, of in forums from of, of in folks that may have uh, certain disabilities and their ability to fly, their ability to use arms and use legs in different ways in these environments was empowering. 
And they would connect over these, uh, you know, these elements of the game design. And it was a small niche community. But I mean, you could see that people really were deriving value and community out of that. So and that was, uh, in essence, like a, a role play. And so that's one form of role play. But there were other role plays where people could. I remember reading articles from people saying, I, my day to day job is this or that, and I'm unhappy. But when I go to second, second life, I can explore this other identity that I have there. And I have a whole different group of friends in that space. So it's sort of, you know, uh, I think that there was some real potential there. I don't know if that crossed over into other platforms, but I remember at the time being impressed with that. Yeah, it was kind of a time where people um, that really weren't into gaming or hadn't experienced that that world were able to get into it in a non-geeky way. And I mean, Martin even touches on that, like um, that, it, you know, that some of that might even turn some people off. Right. But we've kind of got this area where for the first time it was it was a little easier to to build in there Um at least for, you know, people that might not have been exposed to that uh, world. And it was um, easier to kind of imagine the educational applications when there wasn't a clear goal um, like there would be in an actual game. So it's kind of this, you know, playground, but, um, you know, it doesn't take very long of too many rabbit holes or visiting too many islands to start to kind of see the the fantasy lands that that stem from that, that um, I think, you know, at the time and still do probably turn, turn some Uh, more serious academics off. Yeah, it's an unknown, ambiguous space. And I I think sometimes maybe some of the lessons from this chapter I was thinking about in the early part of the chapter was talking about, um, you both brought this up, community, play, um, experimentation, tinkering. Not all of our teaching, learning um, staff and faculty are into that, right? So it's going to be someone who wants to try in the sandbox. And I, I don't, I don't know why. Um, I think there's also a barrier for cost for a lot of these folks, because I, I knew it's something you had to get. Um, at least you had to buy an island, have some Linden dollars. I knew in Second Life, or maybe there's uh, some other ways that they had to have hardware. And this is where I'm unfamiliar. And I'd love to know what you all were thinking about. Because um, it sounded like grants, your high school was more receptive to like playing in the um virtual world sandbox versus going to post-secondary when they're kind of not really sure if we should invest or be a part of that or spend time, invest money or resources, I guess. Yeah. And in, in the high school, it was very much part of what students uh, had access to and the uh, folks in the school were interested in and willing to participate in. And then uh, the university setting, it was skunk works. It was sort of like, okay, this is your thing. And uh, it's on you. <laughs> like oh, entirely if it fails or if, it, if it's if it's successful so it wasn't a lot of buy-in and so yeah I, I definitely saw I'm certainly among the students you know in, in high school there was a lot of interest in curiosity not so much in 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 higher ed um what I saw kind of in 2007 and the few years afterwards in the the couple of faculty that that picked up on it um one was a an online science lab um, where they recreated the lab and they had some experimentation things happening in there that couldn't happen unless somebody, you know, traveled to the lab or had expensive equipment. And that was our university of Alaska Southeast um, campus. Um, So we really had some vast geography there. It was very cost prohibitive to travel. It, you know, kind of opened up the whole, like a world of, okay, like we can build simulations in here and we don't have to, you know, know unity or whatever. Um, And so, 
<clears throat> what I saw happen though with that, and then I had another faculty that I worked with um, that was really into um, World of Warcraft at the time, and she had a course in World of Warcraft. Um, she th- these these courses ended up being like not really able to to take off the way they did without there being like a partner instructional designer that w- could get in there and build with them. Um, and having that that relationship and that other person that was doing most of the tech world in the building. So, um, you know, that was kind of the biggest barrier I saw, you know, from the resources front on higher ed. And then, of course, the $800 a month, I think it was, rental um, showing a return on investment in that. I mean, there's only so long, <clears throat> you know, in higher ed, um, public service world anyways, that we're able to to keep playing without showing um, some sort of return on investment. And that was hard to do um, when we didn't have, you know, a lot of the students didn't have the bandwidth um, where they were in Alaska to join some of these some of these courses, even though there was, you know, 2007 was also a time when um, we were having a lot of bandwidth put out in the villages. You know, to that front, it's it was the cost prohibitive piece on the the university's end and the students' end, especially when we couldn't, you know, when they, there were so many accessibility issues as well. And so I was on, you know, committees that were, you know, sitting at procurement saying we're not procuring things that don't have a VPAT, don't have a clear path for accessibility. And, you know, some of these um, controls didn't work for screen readers and, and, and all of that. Yeah. And that um, hindsight of knowing that access points for both uh, resources, actual disabilities, uh, needs, visual impairments um, is a concern because if people can't be coming to the space, it's not going to be an inclusive environment. It's not suitable for everyone. Martin talks about this a little bit, which is interesting. I also wonder um, if you really need, you said partnership. I like that you talked about that, Sarah, like with the instructional design or technical support, or you needed a champion. Like you almost needed the instructor that was going to lead it or the staff member that was going to be on orientation island that Martin talked about to be um, kind of a, a champion or a steward for why you were there, what was the purpose, and maybe it's because we were just needed more time to explore. But it seems like some of those little islands um, floated away, or that environment got left behind just because it was a high cost in time and money and everything else. Um, but I think there's so much that we could learn from this because. I don't know. I'm thinking to, um, we are recording this at the end of 2020. It'll come out in 2021. Uh, But I'm thinking about like animal crossing and people's escapism to other worlds. Like these are still, we could learn so much from early virtual worlds that are being applied to other environments these days or being tested. And what are some things that like you all took away from kind of the lessons learned at that time? I remember at the time, and certainly now, even more so with hindsight, thinking you could create these spaces that look like anything and are anything. And you have these classrooms with chairs and tables and you have like slides projected on 2D surfaces and all this kind of stuff. And I and then uh, and also at the time, remember market, remember the marketplaces where you could buy like people would design things and sell them for actually Linden dollars, and then be able to exchange them for real money. And I've, I, I kind of telegraphed those marketplaces that are that we have now, like Fortnite, for example, is a great example. Like, look at the money that designers make designing objects for Fortnite. And Second Life, I think, was probably one of the first where you actually had a, an economy 
in in world where real money was being bought and sold. Of course, you had the um, uh, you know you mentioned uh, World of Warcraft. You had like the gold, you know, where that could be bought and sold and you know on online markets. But I just remember that that uh, um, uh, what was it? The, the folks that started Pirate Bay that said there's no such thing as uh, in real life. There's only a way from keyboard. That like so the the and that that there's so much crossover between the virtual and the you know the online and the and the lived experience and you know the tactile world and that that I think some of those design elements and in the in in the in world economy you know you know sort of telegraph that kind of like the online life is too real like that second life is too real life and we're we're not sure what to do in it, with it in a way yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. Then I just bring up—I forgot about the marketplaces, but I do think maybe it influences. I don't want to stretch this too far, but where people have taken other online marketplaces and even Bitcoin, like this is the first kind of uh, other currency that was out there, which may or may not—I don't know if it impacted um, teaching and learning as much. But it is a question to say what was formed. Was there anything else for you, Sarah, that you were thinking about in terms of um, lessons learned that you're thinking? This is still the same that we're doing today. Well, I mean, there's there's definitely some tie-ins to, um, you know, what it means to empower somebody to be in a virtual world um, to our mental health. And, you know, we'd be remiss not to, like, talk about the pandemic um, with, you know, that lens because I've seen, you know, my own friends, my colleagues, my kids um, really um, latch onto these virtual worlds since we've been in the pandemic. I mean, the only way my friend, my, my, my daughter talks to her friend, they're eight years old, is in Roblox. And um, they are making stuff and selling them. They're little hustlers. Um, as soon as they figured out that they could make a hairstyle or um, get in Roblox Studio, they did it. And I still I still haven't taught her how to do any of it. It's, I've just kind of left her with it. Um, and they can do it on the mobile device. And, um, you know, they they were calling each other on FaceTime, but that got really old real quick, just like us calling each other on Zoom has gotten really old real quick. They wanted to be somewhere playing together. And that's helped her mental health because they can't play in real life right now. And, and that was always the thing too. Um, Grant, you just touched on this and uh, Martin touches on it is, you know, what's the point of this virtual world if we're just going to go replicate a, a one-to-many lecture in it. Um, what we really need to, le- to replicate are the things that we can't do in real life, like the simulations. And then like right now, like that, it, that means even play, you know what I mean? So you, know, you can't really play on a Zoom call. I mean, you can, you can make it work, but you know, you can really get into Roblox or Minecraft and play together, call each other on audio. And, you know, sometimes my kids are on audio with the friends and sometimes they're not, and we make little dates for them to do it. And, um, you know, I think it's really helped their mental health, my mental health, um, my my colleagues that are way into gaming and virtual worlds. I mean, that's that's their escape right now. And I think, you know, it's it's a missed opportunity for for ed for education not to be kind of in that space um, fully still. I guess. Yeah, I I I, I hear what you're saying, Sarah. I used to connect with one. I would travel a lot when my kids were little. And one of the things we do the fate, like whatever, at the time you could do the Skype call. And I found it so lacking, right? And still we started playing Minecraft together and chatting while we were playing Minecraft. So we're talking about everything under the suns, what they did to school, what they had for dinner. But at the meanwhile, the, well, the, the, the conversation will break and they say, hey, dad, I want to show you this tunnel I built. 
Can I want to take you down here? Follow me. And then, and it became our call, a 15 minute call, a 10 minute call became an hour and a half connection over a range of things. And the topic organically would move around. And it, I was, and it would really, it uh, helped heal my loneliness. And uh, when I really would miss them when I was away. And it was a very powerful experience. We did that for about two years. It's interesting that you both are sharing kind of like the way this brings in community and getting connection with people because I it resonates with me both of you were living in kind of remote-ish areas and when you move somewhere and you don't know anyone uh, this is what you tap into and I think I love the idea that Second Life and Virtual Worlds offer that but that play space is the most interesting like I'm with you I don't do a lot of Zooms other than, other than when I podcast and that's fun for me um, the other time is when I do a pub quiz with my friends virtually and we spend three hours and trivia and laughing and it gives people purpose instead of showing up and I think like what I'm hearing is you say that we rarely think about meeting each other and how we meet and gather is not fun anymore. But if we could put elements of what the virtual worlds can give us back is those experimentations, those uh, discovery spaces. And this chapter comes after even web 2.0 where you could be anything you wanted to be like the purple cat teachers one, but um, you could create and design what you looked like and what you did, um, how you moved around the world. And we rarely do that in our own classrooms because I don't know, we're, we have a different expectation or we set different expectations. Um, maybe that's something we need to push back against as we, as we think about this year and still being virtually and probably dis- distant remotely because of the pandemic until we all have vaccines. I wonder um, what are some things that you take to the work that you're doing these days? You may not be in these virtual worlds yourselves right now, but what are some things you're thinking about for teaching and learning? I mean, I was just going to mention that, you know, from a, kind of another angle, my the class I taught this last semester um, is like a 200 level design class. Um, so not anything super complicated, but kind of gets them ready for those majors to go on to the games program or something more um, advanced. And, you know, I'm in Canvas. I've got discussion boards. I'm doing everything I can to get, you know, to make those engaging um, to the point that I can. You know, the first discussion board we had, the students realized that they're in the Dungeons and Dragons. So I was like interested that <laughs> Martin brought up D&D and like the kind of nerdy side of that. I think probably like seven of the 15 students I had in that class this last semester ended up in a virtual Dungeons and Dragons little group that they formed by figuring out that they all were all into it from the discussion board. So they found community through, you know, my pseudo, I would say not good enough um, community I had built for the class, but then went on, you know, to have this community outside of that, which I just thought, you know, this is kind of the first time I saw that kind of happen, you know, that quickly, or, you know, I mean, the thread of like, oh, I'm in D&D, what's your username? And, you know, I, however they play online, I'm not even sure. Um, but there's a way and I know some of it's manual and some of it is, um, is, is uh, with some technology, but, um, you know, that piece too, you know, I just thinking to myself, like, you know, how, like, we, I could be like, why aren't I like building, you know, in like Mozilla hubs or somewhere that's easy to, to kind of hold this, this space. And I think that the biggest thing that I take away from it, you know, as an instructional designer, and what I would suggest to, to the faculty I work with is, you know, of course, like the whole class doesn't need to be in the virtual world. Like, 
you know, there still can be asynchronous parts to the class. They get them ready for that. Um, but, you know, what what can't be done in real life right now that can be done in the virtual space um, and what that really looks like and how being like in world is different than the virtual space in the LMS or in Zoom. Um, you know, what that brings and what what that different version of, of creativity um, kind of can level up everybody's brain, even for your calculus class or whatever. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of the thing I try to like challenge myself even with like, you know, if what, you know, why have I been sleeping on this? Um, You know, why, why is that tech sleeping on this? Um, When I've got my colleagues that work in games in VR all day. Um, It's it's an interesting conundrum of the disconnect. I'm glad you brought up VR because I, I, I see a lot of crossover between what Second Life was attempting needed to accomplish and what VR is currently trying to accomplish. I do see a lot of crossover there. And I think, I do think the current round of VR experimentation is doing a better job, certainly on the consumer electronics end of things. Like now the, that hardware is getting closer and closer to the four, three to four, $500 range, which is still expensive, but I mean, we're not talking like $3,000 gaming PC, right? So the, like the affordability is, is getting better. And I do think it's great, Sarah, that you mentioned Mozilla Hubs because the ability, yes, you could have that consumer product, uh, you know, $500 VR helmet, or you can open a browser, you can go into the same space and you can browse it in a two-dimensional space. You're not excluded because you don't have the hardware. I think there's some real design opportunity there, you know, to uh, take another pass at, you know, virtual worlds. And doing it in a way, being mindful of the accessibility elements, being mindful of the digital divide, you know, for whether you, if you're not assuming that everybody's on fiber living in a city, you know, um, uh, and I, 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 I just actually just a few, just this week, uh, uh, got a, a, an Oculus 2 and I started playing with it with, with, my, with my son. And wow, like we connect over it and, and have these great conversations. And a lot of it is about our sense of our, our, our sense of embodiment, you know, and how we feel and how it changes our, our, our balance or, you know, our, our, our emotion, our relationship and spatial, like our spatial relationships and everything. So I think there's some real opportunity for virtual worlds to open up some, you know, some com- more conversations in, uh, uh, in, in learning environments. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. I just, you know, I, I'm glad we had those second life years. Those were good years, but I'm really looking forward to like the new stuff that's coming. I I love how Martin brings up the um, barriers to entry being horizontal and vertical in this in this chapter because I I use that um, that terminology with faculty a lot um, when they when they bring technologies to the table that they want to use that they saw, and um, you know kind of being mindful of well you know what what are the the ramifications of bringing in a third party tool. Um, you know, how, how accessible is it? How, how many of these students have it? Um, can it be used on mobile? Because a lot of our students are on mobile and that, that's even an eye opener. Um, you know, they, they don't realize that like these students are turning stuff in in Canvas on the mobile Canvas. When we went to pandemic world, some of these students were like, had never even like logged into Canvas on a computer. <laughs> so, you know, they were just checking their grades there and, and participating in the discussion boards and submitting. That's all, you know, you can do all of that on the mobile. So, um, the, bar- the barriers to entry being something that needs to be addressed right away. Um, and 
and I do love how, you know, the, the technology has come a long way. Um, you know, you've got the Oculus Quest is $300. And, you know, I almost bought it for my kids this Christmas as well. And I'm still a little cautious that it's so tethered to Facebook. I don't want my, you know, my kids are going to be on this. And that's like this whole other ethical part of this too, right? Is, is um, the privacy issues, you know, what, who are these tech companies in bed with? Like doing that research um, is important um, for us in ed tech to, to champion. Yeah, I, I love that you brought that up, both you getting into the virtual worlds and even the augmented worlds and thinking about the the cost and the risk. Um, I think that's something we don't do enough when we say, let's use this other tool or thing. And this happens with online as well. So we have faculty that try to use different um, spaces, but who's taking that data and where, it, what sense of privacy should you be thinking of or information sharing um, and asking your learners if they want to be in those spaces instead of forcing them in. I don't think we do that enough. So thank you for bringing that point up. I am also thinking about um, the idea of just how so much of play and kind of I, Sarah said the word level up, which I think we could gamify what we do in general. It doesn't have to be um, a, a world that you enter into or another app or tool. It could just be simple things we do to like, I don't know, I think of a, a psychology professor that I used to work with at University of North Texas, and she used to uh, give points and put other zeros on points and grades that they could see their, their leveling up of earning points. And it, it just, that's one example of like modifying how you teach. Um, I think there's so much that we can learn from the things that we enjoy doing, whether it's a virtual game, it's a board game, um, things that we can implement into our lessons just to, it doesn't have to be the whole course, but things that we do when we meet, or if you're going to gather synchronously, like I ask my friends fun quiz questions about if they're with a partner or they're themselves, like just to reflect, do we do that enough? And I don't know if we do. And this kind of reminds me of, um, these are gathering spaces that we're talking about. How can we have better gathering opportunities when we teach? And are, are there things you're thinking about in terms of that? When you're talking about, um, you know, trying to sort of gamify things, can we call them like ed tech hit points or something like that? You know, you know that kind of folds into the D&D thing we've been talking about. Ed tech hit points. I like that. Yeah. Right. We have to like dumb down the imagination in some ways to get someone to take it serious or, you know, in, in a lot of ways. I think about like the Zoom meetings right now and all the, the uh, aha moments that some people are having that are new to just even meeting virtually, including like my kids, teachers and my own colleagues. And some of the ideas you see coming out about like, okay, how to do like a round table, fun icebreaker and like everybody talking about their favorite Pokemon character, you know, that stuff works. And um, I, it reminds me of this. There used to be a website back in the day that I, one of my bosses showed me and that I always showed my design students. Um, and I don't think it exists anymore, which sucks, but they, um, you went to it. It was like, it was like the most stellar design advice and you went to it and all the website said was have a fucking concept. Like it just said it like really big and like white and black. And, um, and you know, you'll, you'll see people be like, well, just because it looks nice or just because it has a theme doesn't mean it's good pedagogy. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, I'm bullshit. Like something having a theme and something being engaging, like that, that, that you don't have to be in a virtual world for that. You can be, it, it can be a very, um, you know, on that horizontal threshold that Martin brings up. It can be very um, low barrier uh, entry. It, it, I, I liken it to the earworm in music, you know. You may not love the song, but there's a hook in that song that you cannot get out of your head. And that's what it is. It's the hook. So it's that little design element 
that just works. I mean, it's the delivery vehicle. I think we could use that more in everything we're doing. And I love that you brought up our meetings because we do terrible meetings just as staff and faculty at institutions out there. Do, do better. Don't meet unless you have to. That's my word of advice. Um, Something that we do at our meetings, we do have icebreakers that are really funny and end up having people tell stories or we set expectations when we come to places and we should in our learning environments. Like what's the kind of awesome feeling that you want your learners to walk away from? Like you want them to smile or think back to an element of your course that's just been delightful for them. And how do we really delight our learners or even our staff and faculty these days? I think I'd love to see more of that. Um, I just remembered something I read a few months ago, and it was in it was in the first wave of, of COVID nineteen. I think this must have been in April or May, and uh, we were talking about people were already at that time in offices and remote work and getting exhausted with Zoom. Zoom fatigue was a thing, and so people was trying to reorganize the way that they were meeting. And uh, so there were, I can't remember who the writer, I'll have to dig the link out and send it to you folks because I think you'd have a laugh. They were, they were started meeting in Red Dead Redemption 2 and they're holding all their office meetings that way in multiplayer and hilarious. And I thought, wow, that, I mean, this is like taking the whole second like you know, ethos to the next level. And if you're, you know, you're, you're adopting these characters and you're meeting around a campfire and it was quite, quite creative. And people, every single person in the interview in this office that did this loved it. They thought it was a really great team building and fun. And quite often their meetings are interrupted by raids, which I had to collaborate. They fight <laughs> off the raid and then they resume their meeting. So it was very funny. Yeah, there's a lot of um, <clears throat> team building and uh, cooperation and learning that can happen in like the PVE, which is like the player versus environment world. Um, you know, you don't have to just get in these environments to just be with each other you can be with each other against something else or solving a problem or building something together that relates to what you're learning about um you know being makers together i think is the biggest the biggest piece that sticks out to me is um or solving problems together um that you couldn't do right now in the real world or even when non-pandemic land when there's the distance piece um is the biggest piece to this that i feel like is the, the the biggest part that jumps out as what the biggest difference is. Um, You've got this environment to kind of um, work in together. Yeah. Like don't create a space for a space, create it for a purpose, like give people a challenge, something to craft or make or something to tinker with or solve. And um, this made me remind me of the book. um, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Priya Parker's The Art of Gathering. Like it's how we meet and why it matters. I think about like, we never really just set intentions or or set spaces to come. We're always like, well, we always used to meet. Well, why? And I, I think about my friend, I was having a conversation with her on Zoom uh, about uh, how, many, how many Zoom meetings she has in, at her university and her like teenage son was like, can I set up a Discord server? Because you all could just do this thing over here. She's like, that might just be too complicated. I get it. But we haven't really shifted our mind to like the things we do because we've just taken these new spaces, whatever we, what tools we've been given. And we're like, we're just going to do the same thing. That's, that's terrible. We don't do that in teaching and learning in, in the online. So why would we put a virtual world or community in that space too? No, I was just going to call that slides on a cube phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. look at one set of slides when I can look at many slides on a cube? <laughs> Say more grants. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to, I neither confirm nor deny 
my involvement in the creation of slide cubes. I'm just going to put I'm just going to put that there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mystery to be solved. Um, I was wondering, thinking about this chapter, is there um, something that you was ho- you were hoping it would be talked about? Because we've talked about some other cool things Martin could have brought up. Is there any- anything else that wasn't mentioned or you- we should talk about now be- before we get into some questions for the community and Martin? I mean, I, I think a lot of it we've kind of already touched on with, which is like, of course, you know, he finished this book before the pandemic. So there's kind of like this lens with which to read everything now, which is, um, you know, how does that, how, how, what, what is the light that's shining on everything right now that's amplifying everything relate to this? And I mean, the biggest takeaway I have is just the, the mental health implications and um, you know, how these virtual worlds can help us cope and, you know, there's a lot of really good research on that from from the game world and from um, from the the play world, not just the video game world, but the game world in general. <clears throat> and I feel like I'm a little bit more exposed to that because I have kids and because I work with with gaming professors. <laughs> um, but it's amazing, and you know, I just always wonder about the disconnect of you know. I think that a lot about this in other industries too. Like, what's the disconnect between you know higher ed's understanding of this or you know academia's understanding of this and um what's happening in the in the actual field like how how are we so you know how are we circling back around on this again but in zoom like why you know why are we showing the why are we showing the slide cubes in zoom you know like why can't this just be a, a you know why can't the the lecture just be recorded you know why do we have to be in in world in this <laughs> zoom world it's like everything's circling back around and you know thinking about the historical amnesia that is brought up um, constantly in the book. One thing I want to mention, I know that Sarah, you brought this up before we hit record. This is also the year you reminded us that um, the iPhone was came out. And I, I wonder if 2007 is the start of the peak um, virtual worlds and also the peak decline of virtual worlds because that phone, not that everyone had access to it in 2007, but it opened up us using other spaces. And maybe that's kind of what Um, Martin alludes to in this kind of, it is after web 2.0 and before e-portfolios. So it's in a space that kind of would have been peak time of being in Second Life or any virtual world. But I wonder if the phone had more access point, because you said it yourself, our learners aren't often using a desktop or laptop. They're using like a mobile device, maybe a tablet with really crappy data, even not even connected to broadband. And I think about that as um, a key point of maybe why that entry and access point that you all had mentioned as well um, is, is, is something to talk about. The socioeconomic piece of it um, is slightly brought in, but I think it could be highlighted more because that's not accessible for everyone. I was just going to say that's that low threshold entry point. Um, and what's interesting, you know, is 2007 is when the iPhone came out. And then you've got, you know, all of these games and these, um, you know, my kids can get on Minecraft and Pokemon Go on my my cell data um, and be in this crazy detailed virtual world. I mean, it might not have the best graphics, but that's the magic of how it works that way, right? But, you know, things can still be replicated there um, and built um, pretty easily. I mean, that's that low low threshold as well. So you've got all that coming into play that um, is really, you know, (laughs) I went and researched like, you know, I tried to like see if I could download the Second Life app and there isn't one still. So, I mean, you know, maybe this this virtual world that still isn't meant for gaming is still behind the games, right? Like, so, you know, I, I know Martin talks about co-oping some technology a lot for, for um, 
education, maybe, you know, Second Life is still too focused on not being a game. And it, you know, could learn from um, from what's going on in the game world because my kids have zero barrier to entry. Um, you know, I feel privileged that, you know, I have an iPhone that has cellular service, but we don't even have to have the internet for it. We just have to have the cell service. And and that is kind of the, you know, one of the lowest common denominators right now amongst my students, um, you know, that they don't, you know, if they can use their cell service to do whatever it is, then then that's um, that's the easiest way. That's the cheapest way. There's the mechanics of the environment as well. Like I remember scripting with LSL and building, it was not trivial. Like it took a lot of homework and trial and error and study reading, a lot of reading the manual, you know, to build something. Uh, my son, when he started playing, he was maybe eight, seven or eight when he first started playing Minecraft. Within about six months, he was using Redstone to build you know, complex kind of things that moved and, you know, things that were somewhat automated with Redstone. No. Yeah. And that, that was a, like a ladder to learning how to use some of the command line Minecraft stuff. But there was this sort of scaffolding of expertise all the way through the platform. There was no scaffolding in Second Life. Like it was just, it was really, there were so many barriers to actually using it in any kind of way. So I do think that uh, Minecraft took some of those elements and really did it well and did it in the, uh, there's no, it's uh, no surprise that Minecraft bought it for, um, that uh, Microsoft bought it for such a, an outrageous sum. Are there things you'd like to ask, I guess, maybe the community, um, and that could be anyone in higher ed, teaching and learning, um, at tech or Martin about the chapter or some things that people should think about? I mean, I was going to, I guess, you know, one of the biggest things I, kind of realized when the pandemic hit and my kids were home and I just pulled them from school. I mean, I straight up homeschool. I mean, I, I just couldn't even deal with what was happening with their own teachers, <laughs> uh, you know, and like not being able to, to, uh, to get online and, and having like so, so much, I guess, disruption, it was easier to just pull them and just let them do their own thing. And, um, you know, I started, researching a little bit more, you know, even Minecraft, the education edition, the version that's, that's uh, geared towards education um, is behind an office 365 wall. So my ability to get on, um, on Minecraft education edition had to do with that. My, my university has office 365 and they have it turned on. Right. Which was like a surprise. I didn't even know. And I bet I'm the only one using it, but I, um, you know, my kids couldn't have gotten on the education edition. The education edition um, costs money. If, if not, if you don't have the OSIS 365, you have to get like your own non-corporate, non-school account and pay for it. So there's still these pieces to the ed tech world. And, I, you know, Roblox is getting ready to go public, <clears throat> um, IPO, like on the stock market. And they have like an education bent as well. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, what are we doing in ed tech as professionals or as, you know, kind of this larger field of professionals with all kinds of different titles <clears throat> to, um, to make it known to these education or these uh, tech companies, you know, that are maybe they're geared towards games. Like why would they give away, you know, the free version to education? Like, I just feel like there's not enough, even in, there's not enough synergy there 
Um, and there's not enough talks there between what education needs out of technology to adopt it and what the benefits of that are. And of course, the benefits are, you know, you get more people in World of Warcraft and Minecraft using it for education. You, then you've got the research and scholars at the university writing about it and taking it more seriously. And like you've got this whole other market, right? Like there's the business um, sense is there, but it's not connecting and it makes it inaccessible to us. Like, you know, my, my, my nine-year-old should not, you know, I should be able to get on Minecraft easier than my nine-year-old, you know, to the education version, but I can't, you know, so it's, it's, it's those kind of things. So I'm just like, where, what is the disconnect and, you know, what can we do to help? Like, why, why do we have this historical amnesia? Like what, what is it about our communication and our business practices and communication practices with these companies um, that, that is the disconnect. And I, I mean, I don't have an answer. <laughs> like, it's just something I'm always wondering, like, how did, how did it get like this? You know, I mean, what, and what can we do to, to make it better? And how can we think of it differently? Sarah, please tell me there's not slides on a cube in Minecraft EDU, please. Um, no, um, they, they, I think they vet some of, of the stuff and it is really like, you can, you can make a, um, you can work with bees to make a pollinator, um, field. You can go into a chemistry lab and mix, you know, you can do the same things that we were doing in Second Life. Um, you know, you can go into a chemistry lab and mix chemicals, um, and which is, you know, part of Second Life's thing anyways, or part of uh, Minecraft's thing anyways. But, um, you know, you've got the kind of that, that crafting culture that's inherent in the game um, in the um, in that space. I mean, they really do have some great stuff in there to make it a maker space. And then, of course, anybody can make in that space. And it's so easy to make in that space. Like, so, you know, I, I have no doubt that um, if, if educators had access, like better access, there would be more making in the space. But, you know, we've got the different cultural cultural um, issues too, which is back to like academia, which is what is this big disconnect between play and work that we can't see in the bridge? Why do we see it play as so and making as so nerdy or childish, you know, that we can't take it serious enough to, to use these tools that would be so easy to, to simulate environments in. I'm, I may have come across like a wall with some text though, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So eight bit, eight bit, eight bit text on the wall. Yeah. Well, that's the magic of it, right? Like that's how it's yeah. so accessible. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's a good question that you pose. You actually asked two questions that are really good there, Sarah. Uh, why is there a disconnect between what we do in higher ed and industry? And I think um, being someone coming from the industry side, I actually am asking that too. Like, why didn't we have more conversations with people that are doing gaming and um, tech building and software? Um, we always have an us versus them, but there could be more collaborations and partner true partnerships not one imposing a lot of vendor imposing on or a company imposing on and that's you know that's a good question because I think there are some shared goals that um, I know I think I live in Seattle so uh, I know that Microsoft wants to do these things uh, I know Amazon wants to do, do these things to help support better society when it terms of learning and teaching um, but we aren't closing those gaps for some reason and and the other gap that you mentioned is the play and learning. I don't know. What happened to us? Where do we lose the play? That's a great question. I don't know. Maybe uh, this is a call out of if you are listening to this episode and you have more play, let's share how we're playing in our teaching and learning because I think we could do better and get new ideas. I think I do. I do agree with you on that. There's um, play also means failing. So I think that's the call out is we're worried and we don't let some of our, even ourselves, like 
fail and mess up and go, hmm, I guess I'm going to just try it again. Or there is there opportunity in your designs that allow, um, yeah, for real big uh, tr- troubleshooting issues, uh, t- figuring out the problem or failing at it and going, I don't fail the course, but I failed this assignment and let me learn from that and recoup. Here, here, more play, more experimentation, more creativity. Yeah. More, you know, bounded risk-taking, not, you know, you know, calculated risk-taking somewhat. Can we do <laughs> calculated risk-taking? Is that a thing? Uh, is that like um, masterminding, like the taking over the world domination? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like, maybe that's it. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think I've been watching too much Rick and Morty if I'm using words like calculated risk-taking. Yeah. <laughs> Grant, what questions or kind of things you want do you want to pose to Martin or um, the community to think about um, virtual worlds and Second Life? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, I'm excited for uh, what's to come uh, in what we have learned. Hopefully, we'll take forward some of our lessons uh, from Second Life and have them inform what virtual reality and augmented reality are going to be. Hopefully we will not re- mis- make the same mistakes, you know, and we'll be able to, you know, improve those experiences, make them more accessible, make them, you know, uh, lower our barriers to entry and uh, be able to, as instructional designers and faculty developers, call out bad practices in that realm when we see them and say, hey, I was around in 2006 and seven, and that did not work. So let's do it differently. Well, I really thank you both for uh, sharing all your wealth of knowledge and play and experimentation with these worlds. I know like 2% of, and so I'm really grateful for kind of hearing what kind of everyone was doing at that time and what you were thinking about and what we're still should be thinking about when it comes to gamification, virtual life, the world living and how we could live a better life online. It sounds like. Yes, thank you for having us. Um, Grant, I'm interested. I, I can't believe we got through this whole conversation and um, we haven't told everybody what our Second Life name was. What was oh, your yeah. name in Second Life? Oh my goodness. Oh, my <laughs> Second Life name. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you both. Uh, I, I was digging actually for some, because I used to do workshops. So I know I'd recorded some. And I found on YouTube from like 2008, a couple of videos of me demonstrating Snoodle stuff. And I wasn't going to share it because it was a little embarrassing, a little cringy, but I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to share it. So my username is actually in that video. So I'll send you folks the video so you can watch and you can see all the mechanics of how Sludo worked, the chat boxes, the, maybe even some slides on a cube. You never know. What was yours? Do you remember yours? I had to look it up. I mean, talk about historical amnesia. Like I couldn't even remember like my avatar name in there. Right. Um, but it was Jane Zwickle. Um, which is like a ZW. And I think I just wanted to be clever because there weren't any ZW words or something to that effect. Um, but I have like a Sci-Fry t-shirt on. <laughs> I just like was NPR. Uh, I was obsessed about NPR and, and radio at the time and uh, public radio, but, and science, but um, you know, yeah, it's cringeworthy. You know, there's part of it that, you know, I think we selectively left it out of our brain because, you know, there's something cringeworthy or, you know, almost embarrassing about how excited we were maybe even. So, um, you know, I'm willing to own that and kind of go back to it and, and think about um, how we can make it less cringeworthy if we revisit it again in academia. The thing that struck me too, when I was watching these old videos of me demonstrating things with my avatar is that I made the avatar look like me. 
of all the things. I could have been anything. And I'd look like this, you know, 30 something dude with frizzy hair. Like I could have been anything. I did the same while other people were taking advantage of how they could look. I was kind of obsessed with trying to make my, you know, trying to get, you know, tweak it to where it looked enough like me as as I possibly could, um, which is also probably some sort of other psychological thing with um, with people who are into, into making. But yeah, same. Uh, well, that's a different podcast, so we're not going to dig into your <laughs> identities and second life, but I do appreciate you sharing. Um, we'd love to share anything uh, you have uh, for our listeners. I'm going to put together some links, but thank you so much for your time and chatting about and digging back into the uh, archives of the virtual world. I really appreciate it. Great. And Sarah? This is really fun. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.